to hear our passage this morning, Acts chapter 4, verse 32, through the end of chapter 5, the section of Scripture that Mike read so well to us. To understand this story, the story of these few pages are actually giving out to us, to understand it, we have to remember something. We have to remember this is an episode within a much larger story. And that larger story is what makes sense of some of the really difficult, challenging, hard-to-process aspects of Acts chapter 4 and 5. The larger story, it begins all the way back on the first page of the Bible. It begins with the beginning. The beginning of the world. The world had a beginning. It it hasn't always been there. It hasn't always been here. It was created by the one and only true God. And we humans... We're a part of God's creation. We are one of the things that God created. Adam. That's what the creature, the human, at the beginning of the Bible is called. And when God made Adam, Adam came onto the scene of creation as God's image. The actual image of the one and only creator. But Adam sinned, and through his sin, all of us have been caught up in the sin and the death that entered this world. And as a result, all of us, we move in patterns of self-defeating damage. And we just keep digging the hole even deeper. We do this not only in the ways that we willfully choose self-destructive deceits, and death, but we also do it in the way we, through our very own efforts, try to make things better, but end up making them too often worse. Our attempts to reason ourselves toward a better world are frustrated not only by the fact that the world in which we reason in, it's out of control, but also by the more sinister problem that those of us who are trying to fix this world are profoundly broken ourselves. And we can't fix ourselves. There's this passage in the Bible where the Apostle Paul puts it like this, the good that I wish I could do, I can't. And the evil that I I wish not to do, That's the thing I do. There is no amount of self-discipline, no amount of education or good intention that can overcome the power of sin in our world and in our own lives. Sin is so powerful. It's come, and the, the, the power of sin comes from a multitude of factors. At the heart of it is the longevity of sin. It's just been here for so long. And not just its longevity, but its historical texture and its accumulated weight. And this is the problem. We humans, we are simply not powerful enough to throw off the immensity of sin and to make a world in which sin doesn't reign. And on top of all this, 
There's our bodies. These bodies that are so prone to decay, to breaking down, to death. Sooner or later, all of us will be mastered by the power of death. Death is this power that is more powerful than anything we can do. And all of us are going to lose the fight to it. That's the story the Bible tells. This is the account of the world that the Bible holds out. But it's in the midst of this vision, this account of the world, in the midst of the history of our world, devastated as it is by sin, that the one true God who created everything, he elected Israel to be a light in the darkness. And he gave Israel the most remarkable gift. He gave this one particular nation that he had elected to be the light in the darkness. He gave this nation a gift called the Torah. Instructions for how to live their common life together in such a way that the image of God was once again shining. In the world. This world. This world was was supposed to look at Israel. And see what God looks like. And and see in Israel the beauty of, of the world's creator. Life lived the way the image of God should live. Reflecting the life of God. The Torah. It's the first five books of the Bible. It it lay out a rule of life that Israel was supposed to adopt. A way of living together that was holy and just and good and beautiful. One of the most amazing parts of the Torah is the section that we call Deuteronomy. The one and only true God in the book of Deuteronomy, he's describing what life will look like when Israel finally lives as the image of God. In the sixth chapter of this book called Deuteronomy, we're told there's coming a day when God's people will love him in a particular way with all of their heart and soul. And because they love God so comprehensively, they will discover the ability to love their neighbor like they love themselves. Then in the 15th chapter of Deuteronomy, God says, look, every seven years, there must be a remission of all debts. Everyone who's owed money, absolve the debt. Just wipe it away. And as a result, Deuteronomy chapter 15, it's envisioning what life on earth will be like when God's people are living as God's people. In Deuteronomy chapter 15 verse 4, it says, and when that happens, there will be no needy among you. Because the Lord is sure to bless you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. Now, wow, who wouldn't want to be a part of that nation? I mean, who among us would not want to live in such a place? Every seven years, slate wiped clean. But Israel, she never lived up to this vision. 
Just like all the other things in a sin-devastated world, sin seized the Torah. And it twisted Israel's relationship with it. The Torah, the law, the rule of life, it remained what it always was. Holy, just, good, beautiful. But the power over humans was just too much. It overwhelmed Israel's ability to be tutored by the Torah in how she should live. And so as the story goes, in the fullness of time, Jesus Christ was born. And Jesus, the Bible says, is the son of Adam. The Son of God. This meant that Jesus could restart the story. He could rewrite the first chapter of human life. And this time, it's different. Where the first human, the first Adam, was tempted and failed. The second Adam resisted temptation. And so creation restarted. And he was able to redo creation, to set us on a new foundation. That's why one of the bits of the New Testament we read, it says, if anyone is in Christ, new creation. The old things have gone away, and behold, new things have shown up, have come. Jesus Christ, the Son of Adam, the Son of God, he re-begins the world. And what does this re-beginning, this new creation look like? What does the re-beginning of the world look like? This inbreaking of a new world, the world the way it's supposed to be, breaking into the old world. What does that look like? Well, as Mike read to us, it looks like this. Now, the full number of those who believe were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common and with great power, The apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and great grace was upon them all and there was a phrase we heard earlier, not a needy person among them. There it is. The new creation. Life, the way it was meant to be, the stuff of our wildest dreams has happened. When you look at the church in Acts, you are seeing the fulfillment of the ancient promises that the Creator made. The true community, the people of God, have arrived. And how did it get here? It got here by the massive and total forgiveness of debt achieved by Christ on the cross. And this extravagant wiping away, wiping clean of every debt, this extravagant wiping away of the most enormous debt, it makes possible the ability of these Christians to share their possessions with whoever was among them and had a need. Now this is... this incredible account in Acts chapter 4 there at the end it's telling us not that they sold the roofs from over their own heads keep reading in Acts they kept meeting in their houses so clearly they're not selling out from under themselves their houses what we're seeing what Luke is pointing out to us is that the early church was the manifestation of God's promises to heal the world by placing his image 
in the world. Acts 4.32, they were of one heart and soul. And this doesn't just mean that they agreed on stuff. No, don't overly sentimentalize this. I think when we do that, we let ourselves off the hook. No, what this means is they were of one heart and soul. It tells you what it means in the next phrase. No one said that anything belonged to him or was his own. In other words, of one heart and soul in this passage means that they began to regard the needs of each other as their own needs. That's what this passage means by they were of one heart and soul. This is the new creation breaking right into the midst of the old. And obviously this community, this group, the way they live, such kindness for each other, such care. Where we no longer relate to each other as neighbors. We now relate to people who were born to different parents as family. That's what it means. They sold their stuff. It's exactly what David Cooper would do for any of his children who needed something that he could provide. It's what many of you have done for brothers and sisters and moms and dads. This group began to treat each other not in a reciprocity way, according to the Greco-Roman rules of friendship, but in a family way. The temple authorities, they thought, they told people that they were the embodiment of God's true people. But here the church is actually living out God's true people kind of stuff. They're manifesting the incredible vision that God has been holding up for 2,000 years. Jesus' followers are now showing the world what the true assembly of God's people act like with each other. And by doing that, the implication is the leaders of the temple, they're a sham. So when we keep reading in Acts and we get to chapter 5 and we see this really disturbing story of Ananias and Sapphira. Now that our minds and imaginations and memories are throbbing with the whole story of the Bible and we see that the church is the real temple, God's Spirit has filled the church, forgiveness happens in this community, in the church, new life. The life the way it was always meant to be lived. It's in the community called Christian. The Christians are the church. The church is the long-awaited true temple of the presence of God. And so we begin to remember now other dangerous events of power with the temple. Like the time when King David was bringing the ark into Jerusalem. And it was being carried on an ox cart. And one of its guardians, having been told, do not touch the ark. When the ark wobbles, reaches out his hand. And do any of you know the story? What happens to him? On the spot, he dies. And there are other stories that reveal this dangerous, powerful holiness of God that emanates from the temple and from God's people, like the time in Joshua chapter 7 where a man named Achan also does a greedy thing. And he takes what belongs to the Lord and swift, supernatural, deadly punishment 
is visited on him. Or the time in 2 Chronicles chapter 26 when King Uzziah infringes on the temple and he's immediately struck down with leprosy. And we don't like these stories. We don't like Acts chapter 5. We don't like swift, immediate judgment, leaving no room for the possibility of repentance. But do you realize these are really, really rare stories in the Bible? We're dealing with three, almost 3,000 years of history. And there's only a few of these stories. But when they happen, they happen for a powerful reason. Normally in the Bible, when people do wrong, just like today... They get away with it. But on certain occasions in the Bible, just like today, swift, immediate, irrevocable judgment. Can you hear what God is saying to us through the story of Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5? He's saying that the church is the temple of God. Don't mess with it. To live in the church is to live in the presence of the God who made the world and who longs passionately for it to be right and good and just and beautiful. And so, yes, the church is the new creation. This is where we have wonderful healings. And this is where we see courageous people standing up to bullying authorities. And this is where we see astonishing property sharing. And we also see That God is not a toy to be trifled with. And God puts a very clear marker down about lying and greed and ego. Ananias and Sapphira wanted the credit and the prestige for the generous way of living that Christians live without the inconvenience of actually living that way. So in order to gain a reputation to which they had no right, they told a brazen lie. Their motive in giving was not to relieve the poor, but to fatten their own ego. And God said no. This is not new creation. And he put a marker down. And then what happens next? Verse 11. Great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. The kingdom of God is moving forward and to resist the kingdom, to strike at it, to try and corrupt it. This is unwise. And so in Acts chapter 5, verses 12 through 16, we see the story continuing. Here's the true temple, the church, the real people of God, and they're meeting right in the middle of the old temple. Now, you've got to think, this is not just a building. It's an entire complex. It covers acres and acres and acres. There's lots of buildings. There's houses for priests. There's all kinds of courtyards. There's a wall around the whole thing. Lots of different gates. Lots of different porches. And here are these Christians meeting in the old temple. But they're the new temple. And all of these people are coming to Jerusalem from all over Israel. And the power of the living God is is so concrete and definite and undeniable. It's not just about talk. It's bubbling up in healings and in teachings and in the pattern of living of this community. And this way of life, it's, it's a way of living in which all 
of these people who once may or may not have known each other suddenly treat each other in kingdom ways. Everyone who shared belief in Jesus was treating each other like family. And they were talking and acting and they were as, as if they were the true people of God, the true fulfillment of the promises, the true temple. And so it's no wonder in Acts chapter 5, verse 17, the high priest rose up and all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, and they were filled, filled with jealousy. Of course they were. A store and somebody starting an exact same kind of store in your parking lot and underselling you. And treating people better than you, right? This is like you've got an opera hall and a traveling band of musicians set up camp right outside. And they're better than you are. Of course they were jealous. They had power because they were guardians of the central shrine. The holiest spot on earth. But these Christians were living as if they were the holiest spot. And the Christians were doing this right in the temple. Right in the nose of those with authority. So the temple authorities back in chapter 4 verse 13, when the Christians started doing their thing, they were astonished is the word in 4.13. But now in chapter 5 verse 33, they are enraged and want to kill them. The temple authorities think that the Christians are undermining the very fabric of Judaism in the way they had known it. And so they are dead set on preventing that. They put them on trial. And the basic response of the apostles in the trial is, guilty as charged. Yep, your honor. We are guilty on both counts. There's two counts. Uh, contempt of court and this other one about others. But the fascinating thing is, when it comes to the truth, when it comes to real justice, those of us who are reading through the book of Acts, we actually know they're innocent of real injustice. They're not guilty of breaking real truth and real injustice. It's the temple authorities who are guilty. It's the judge who's unjust. So how do the innocents, standing in the presence of the guilty judge, how do they respond? This is where I want us to end our, time, our reflections, our sermon this morning. How do they respond? This is what's so fascinating While the Christians are the innocent ones, and they are the ones facing trial and death, they can't prove their innocence. Because the truth, the real truth, the true story of the world that the Creator has recreated this world through Jesus, that there has been a new beginning, this truth can't be proven It requires repentance to believe. It requires repentance to even be understood. So what do you do when you're standing in front of somebody who does not have the capacity to understand the truth? This is big. This is fundamental to the book of Acts. The high priests don't get it. So Peter can't argue it. Why? Because those who are outside of Jesus are in darkness. And darkness clouds your understanding. Notice the big flow of our passage this morning. 
The invitation to Jesus, to God's new creation, it carries with it an entire pattern of life, an alternative way of living. The resurrection of Jesus overflows into that last paragraph of Acts chapter 4, the way they live together. This is what the whole first half of our reading was about. From the end of chapter 4 all the way through the middle of chapter 5. The good news is that God the creator has recreated the world in and through Jesus. And he invites us into the new creation. But, and this is the point. The call to Jesus is simultaneously a summons into the church. Into Living new community patterns of life. All the stuff about loving each other like family so that someone in your church, if they have a need, you help them out just like as if they were your mother or father or brother or sister or child. You sell stuff if you have to. You take care of them. That's just the tip of the iceberg. The point is Christianity is much broader, much bigger, much deeper than ideas. It's something much more comprehensive than a set of facts. It is an entire pattern of life, an alternative way of living, right in the middle of the old way of living. The resurrection of Jesus flows over into how we fit together, how we relate to one another. The resurrection of Jesus produces a community, God's people living God's way. And it is so beautiful, isn't it? I mean, who doesn't want this? Who doesn't want to be treated by other people like your family? And when you join the community in trust and you begin to practice the Christian way of living, that is the only way you can know it's true. You have to live Christianly if you want to know the truth of Christianity. And by the way, all you parents who are Christians, you're doing this with your children, aren't you? Aren't you raising them to live Christianly? That's exactly what you're doing. You have to participate in the church to know the truth of the church. The kingdom of God embodied in the church is the gracious act of God to bring the world out of darkness. Only those of us who live after Max Weber think that religions start with a charismatic figure and then they devolve into institutionalism and we stand over here on this side with our modernist individualistic predilections and we look at religions and we think that institutions are somehow corruptions and so we read Acts and we love the Gospels because we get Jesus but then we turn to the rest of the Bible and we get the church and we think somehow that's a negative. Only people living this side of Weber would say that. Only people who have this enlightenment view of Charisma leading to institutionalism and anti Only those of us would read this as a downgrade. But if you could step out of that view and you could say, look, the power of Jesus is passing into a community and look at the way this community is living. In other words, what we are seeing here is that Peter doesn't stand up in front of the skeptics and use logical argument. Instead, the church uses the argument of display. That's the argument of Acts. In other words, look at the church. Look at the community where there's healing. Just yesterday, 
Anita Cooper told me about the amazing, miraculous healing of her eye that occurred through the prayers of the church. And I bet we could go through this room, and I bet you there are many, many stories of the power of God doing stuff like is happening here in Acts among us. And I bet there are many, many more stories of people in this room who have experienced somebody else in this room helping them out financially. Look at the church. Look at this community. There is no other place I want to live than in the church. I don't know how people make it apart from the church. There's a narrative in our culture of the church being jerks and hypocrites. The funny thing about that narrative is that it's always about this ambiguous church. And when I ask people, have you ever been treated like, I mean, like really? Look back at chapter 5, verse 13. None of the rest dared to join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes, both men and women. Two interesting and opposite results. Nobody dared join them. A bunch of people joined them. Christianity, the gospel, the resurrection of Jesus, the new creation, alarming to some, appealing to others. Some are frightened away. Others are drawn to the faith. This message that I'm sharing To some people, it does not sound like good news because the chief priests were right. It is a deep threat to every part of your life that is twisted up with death. It is a deep threat to foundational ways of living. From the perspective of the outsider, the good news is bad news. But that's only because, with all due respect, if you're outside the faith, you're living in an upside-down world. And so everything looks weird to you in the church. With all due respect, it's because you're confused. I want to say, like in Brother, Brother Arthur, come on in. The water's fine. This is a remarkable place to be in the church. And while this message might strike the ear as a threat, look at our church. Look at the kindness in this church, at the healing in this church, at the sharing and the caring. And tell me, where else other than in the church where you get this? People say all the time to me, all the time I get these questions about our art gallery. Why do y'all do this? And you know why we do this? This is the resurrection of Jesus. That's the power in our church. The reason our church is so full of kindness and joy and sacrificial giving is not because we're special. It's because the power of the resurrection is bubbling up here. And this is what it does. It creates life. It makes homes. It makes families. It brings forgiveness. And do you know what a forgiven group of people can do? Just live in our church for a while. And you'll see. Becoming a Christian requires repentance and forgiveness. But it's life. And can you see Peter here? He's extending this offer of salvation to the very people who killed Jesus. What extravagant grace. 
Jesus raised from the dead, opened the door for a new beginning. So to the people who actually killed him, the new beginning is offered. What a remarkable display of the incredible grace of God towards even those who murdered Jesus Christ. Have you done worse? No. We can't overcome our own sin. True life begins when you reach out in faith for the crucified one. And if you haven't done this, I invite you to repent and trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of sins and come into his church, the community that bears his name, and begin, become a part of the rebeginning of all things. And if you would like to do this, you can do it now. Right now, right where you are, you don't even have to close your eyes or do anything weird that draws attention to yourself. You can, in your heart, call out to God and ask him, would you save me? I will believe in your son. I will learn this pattern of living. Will you forgive me of my sins and forgive me of all the things I've done wrong? And will you fill me with your Holy Spirit? I need your help. That's all you got to do and just reach out for him. We're about to pray. Our whole church is going to start praying for the world. While we do, you just get in your own space and call, reach out to Jesus. We're going to have the Eucharist in a minute. And when we do, there's going to be people in the foyer to pray. Go out to them and say, I need help. I don't know how to pray this kind of prayer. Will you teach me how to pray? Will you pray for me? If you need to think about it some more, my email's on the back of the worship guide. My phone number. Call me. I'll drop everything. Let's talk about this. This is life. This is the only way you can be saved. This is the only solution. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please stand.